We've been, we've been doing what I'm calling squirreling through the book of Mark, and I'm trying to connect it to anything that I can that seems to make sense to us. And so it only made sense to me that after having had the power team here that we ought to talk about Jesus and the strong man. Jesus and the strong man. You see, during his day, he was creating quite a stir himself, wasn't he? In fact, as we read Mark's account, we find out people are coming from all these towns, and they're finding him, and and they keep crowding him, and, and he can barely keep up with all that is going on. And the stir was so great that he's beginning to create some consternation among the Jewish religious leaders of the day. And a lot was going on that was revolving around the Lord Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 3, verse 20, we read our text today, which we're calling Jesus and the strong man. Then the multitude came together again, so they they could not so much as eat bread. They don't even have time to stop and, and take nourishment because there are so many people pressing in on what's going on. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons." So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit." Clearly something was happening in the day of Jesus Christ. There were people who were being healed, and there were people who were being delivered of demon possession. And as you read Mark's account, you know this is happening more than one or two times. And that's why the crowds are running to him. Now, in that context, when all of a sudden they're seeing something that they have not quite seen anything like that before, in all of their experience, somehow you have to explain it. you got to do something with it. You can't explain it away because people who had been sick are now well. People who had been demon-possessed are now in their right minds. You can't explain it away, but you got to somehow come up with what, what is going on here. Well, his family... They can't figure it out. And so they actually, we get the impression, just just this brief note that is given that they say, well, he's out of his mind, okay? We don't know. He's always been a little bit weird. You know, everybody's got a crazy cousin. Well, this seemed to be theirs. And he's just a little bit off. He never quite went with the rest of the family on how he did things. And he's just always something was a little quirky with him. And so you almost get a sense they're trying to pull him out of the crowd so this would just settle down because they're made uneasy by this relative of theirs who's creating such a problem. So that's their explanation. But more sinister than that is the explanation of the scribes, some of the religious leaders who are responsible for keeping track of the, of the scriptures being copied, and they work with the law. 
And they bring their own presumptions about reality to bear upon this. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk a little bit, to begin with, about our presumptions of reality. If we think about it, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, see, we, we, we tend to think our, 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 our presumptions about reality are all accurate, aren't they? We tend to think that we've got the right view on everything, and if everybody else would just conform to us, then all of reality would conform to us appropriately. We ever stop to think about our presumptions about reality are built upon our biases, our histories, our previous knowledge and education, and even our motivations. See, the explanation that the scribes give is one that fits their motivations. They're not real happy about what's happening with this guy. And they have to come up with something dismissive. Not truth, but dismissive. Because to affirm that what this guy's bringing is truth then puts them in the position of, we got to change what we believe, what we say, and what we do. So they have a motivation to see to it that Jesus is dismissed in terms of everything that is happening here. So they came with this different view. They didn't deny the reality that people were being delivered from demon possession. That wasn't it. They only questioned the source of his work. So they came up with this, this according to their perception of reality and all of their, their biases and all of that mixed into it. They said, well, here's how he's ca- ca- uh, casting out the demons. See, because they can't do it. They've been watching these people demon-possessed around them, and they know they can't do it. So here's how he must be doing it, because we can't affirm him. He's doing it by the prince of demons, by Beelzebub, by Satan himself, by the power of the evil one. That's how he's doing it. And it seems like it could be a plausible explanation. On the surface, it seems like it could do that. And in the process, it will dismiss him. It will cause people to think of him as somebody evil. He's dabbling in that which is dark, that which is something to, be, to stay away from. You know, friends, sometimes things seem plausible on the surface. It seems like, well, that really could be the case. But with closer scrutiny, you realize that just can't be right. Something isn't adding up there. I said there's two things that kind of stirred our congregation this week. The one was the power team as it came through last weekend. The other was the kids had their Awana Derby. All right? Exciting time. Kids did a great job with their cars. That was all good. So it seemed to me that we ought to bring something into this discussion about cars. And if we do that, then, of course, we're talking the strong man, so we're talking muscle, we're talking cars. I got it. What can we talk about? Some muscle cars, okay? So back in the 60s and 70s, you young people don't even understand this, okay? We had muscle cars. When I was working in the liquor store, there, I remember the owner of the store came one day coming to work, and he's like, dude, just saw this movie. It's called Bullet. Incredible movie, man, it's just great. Okay, the movie, for the most part, was just like any other movie out of the 60s. Okay, but there's one thing he said, it had this chase scene in it that was absolutely amazing. And so I had to go watch it. Well, about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, Bullet was on again on the TV because I watch old movies. And I had to at least watch the chase scene. 
And I found in the chase scene immediately, I said, that doesn't make sense. That cannot be logically possible. So the chase scene as a whole is much too long. But we're going to, I've got Dave, he's got it queued up. You ready to go here, buddy? Are we good? All right, and he's going to show us just a little bit better than two minutes of the chasing. Now, your task is to find what is logically impossible. Can't be. That's your task. Look for it. All right, it sounds like you got it. That's good, Dave. That's good. Did you see it? What was logically impossible? Other than the fact that you give the Charger a 10-second head start and the Mustang catches up to it in about one second. You know, boom, it's caught up to it again. But what was logically impossible? Who saw it? What? I thought somebody... Back, Bob. The Volkswagen. What about it, Bob? Exactly. All right. So you got these cars going, and then here's the Volkswagen going, but, 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 but. And they pass the Volkswagen. Do you know how many times they pass that Volkswagen? Four times they pass the little Volkswagen going, but, 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 but. The funniest one is when the car comes down, all right, the charger comes down, it disappears behind that hill, and you're waiting for the charger to come up, but here comes the Volkswagen in front of it, but, 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 but. All right. That obviously cannot happen. If you pay attention, to it, it simply cannot happen that way. They cannot keep passing the slower-moving car all the time. We look at it, we laugh, we think it's kind of crazy, don't we? But you understand, that's what Jesus is saying took place. When the, the scribes lay out before them, hey, here's how he's casting out the demons. He's casting them out by the prince of the demons. And Jesus said, it doesn't add up, people. And he tackles or responds to that from a logical basis. He says a house divided won't stand. It can be a nation rising up against itself. That nation is going to fall apart. A household against itself, it's going to fall apart. Even the kingdom of Satan. When it rises up against itself, it becomes divided. That kingdom is going to fall apart. Jesus then gives clarity. There's only one way by which he is able to cast out the demons, because that's what's in question. you got to first bind the strong man. And it, then you can move into his house. You can take whatever you want from him once you've bound the strong man. The strong man in this particular case is Satan himself. Jesus isn't working with him. Jesus' power is greater than his, and he's able to put a hold on his power so that he can then go and take for those who the, who the demonic realm have enslaved. He goes, sorry, I'm going to hold your power here, and I'm going to take this one because this one's mine. And he is able to bring deliverance by his own power, more than that, by the power of the Spirit of God. Jesus says it doesn't add up. Now, we've got to ask this question briefly. Why would they suggest such an illogical 
such an illogical solution to this fact that they're seeing people being delivered by Jesus uh, from their demon possession. And in chapter, in, earlier in the chapter, we had read this. I'd mentioned the stir was happening. It was creating a problem. The Pharisees went out and immediately plotted. This is after he'd done some healing on the Sabbath, which did not fit their framework. The Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. The fix is already in. The reality is not, let's understand truth about who this guy is delivering people. The reality is, he's stirring up everything around us, everything we've stood for. He's, he's, he's destroying every one of our biases, our presuppositions, and everything we do. So we've got to get rid of him rather than learn anything from him. So that's why they throw this out. Now, Jesus carries the discussion one step further, if you paid attention. He moves from the logical to the theological, and he offers this caution that our presumptions about reality, in this case, that they could explain Jesus away and what was happening simply by saying that he cast out demons by the prince of demons, when in effect Jesus is saying it's the power of the Spirit of God in him. Our presumptions about a reality may endanger us for eternity. They may endanger us for eternity. For he says, any form of blasphemy will be forgiven you, but the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be. That person is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. Now, this whole, this whole concept of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, um, the word blasphemy in its, root, in, in its uh, most root form means to slander. And so clearly what they were ascribing to Satan was something that the Holy Spirit was doing. Now, people, as they try and understand and wrestle with this passage, there's, I, I find those who have a very narrow view, and they will say, well, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is when you ascribe to Satan what, uh, what Jesus did by the Spirit's power, and we can't do that today because we don't have Jesus here in front of us. And so that's a very narrow, it seems to me, quite wooden perspective as to what the Scriptures might be, be teaching. But some will contend that. Others will take a much broader perspective of that, and that is it's any slandering of the Spirit of God, anything which speaks against the working of the Spirit. Well, whether it's the, the Spirit's working, whether it's an actual slammer, slandering, or I think even simply resisting, the effect is still the same. We are not allowing what the Spirit of God is trying to reveal, what the Spirit of God is trying to change, what the Spirit of God is trying to bring by way of truth. We're not allowing that to happen. And so His work in us comes to an abrupt halt. You see, the Spirit is God's agent of regeneration and transformation. And if we reject that, if we say, we will not let him, I will not let him impact my life, I will not yield to what the Spirit wants to do, the work shuts down. And if we do that relative to the Spirit wanting to convict us of our, of our sin and of our need for salvation, we in effect resist or even slander the Spirit of God, then we are in a bad way. Now, 
Uh, it was really fun to watch the Freeze uh, win basketball game yesterday. If you were there, you had a good time watching that. If you were there to watch the Freeze. Um, if, I'm sorry if you're here from Stephen Argyle and you were there to watch the Storm, but I apologize. It was fun to see them win. At the end of the game, they had enough of a lead that those of you who watch basketball know that at some point you start trying to just play keep away. You're trying to run out the clock because you've got that much of a cushion. So they got into that. It's not as much fun to watch, but they got into that and they won the game in doing that. Driving home, Lori asked a question. She said, do they ever get try that and find out, well, that's not working and we'll go to something else? Now, you basketball aficionados, you can correct me on this. My answer to her was, well, I don't think so. I've never seen them go away from it for this reason. That's their last-ditch effort. They already couldn't score more points, number one. Number two, they couldn't, get, they, they, uh, they couldn't stop what was going on, and they can't get the ball otherwise. So they've they got to do something to change what is going on, to try and to get the ball back. And so what they're doing when they, they don't have enough points and they're not gaining any speed, they go, okay, the last thing we can try and do is foul. At least it forces the ball back into our hands at some point. And so we will foul, put the free throw, hope they miss, we'll get the rebound. We have no hope. It's a last-ditch effort. Friends, when we resist See, we've got the scriptures that tell us about who Christ is. We've got that revelation. We've got the revelation of creation tells us who God is. We've got uh, the, the scriptures telling us about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have all sorts of things that lead us to an understanding that we need what God offers us in the person of Jesus Christ. It's the Spirit of God who takes all of that and impresses it upon our heart so that we recognize our need. That's the last thing that we can resist. And if we resist that working of the Spirit, then we resist that to our own destruction. There's no other place that God's going to go to then. And he's now going to say, oh, okay, you didn't want my scriptures, you didn't want my son, you didn't want okay, oh, you didn't want the Spirit, okay, I'll think of something else to try and convince you. No, the Spirit is it. The Spirit is like, hey... This is it. This is who God is dealing with us by. Uh, He is working on us and trying to draw us to himself. So, here we are. Our presumptions about reality may endanger us for eternity if those presumptions keep us resistant to what the Spirit of God wants to do in our lives. So, the only last question I want to ask is just this, friends. What presumptions do we bear? What presumptions do we bear about reality, and are they endangering us for eternity? I'll throw a few out that are just common. They're they're out there. This is what people think. And I want to just at least us today acknowledge these are not what Scripture reveals. Number one, everybody gets in. (laughs) You die, you go to heaven. Isn't that what happens, right? You die, you go to heaven. Here's another one. Sincerity is all that matters. As long as you sincerely believe whatever it is you believe, that's all that matters. And somehow God will just just dismiss your rejection of the work of His Holy Spirit in your life to bring you to Himself. Or it's simply a matter of the good has to outweigh the bad. If if I do more good things than I do bad things, well, then I'm going to be in. Everything's going to be fine. And all in all, I'm a pretty good person. Or... All religions worship the same God. They're all seeking to accomplish the same end. Or, there's more than one way to get to heaven. 
Every religion offers a way. And every religion, it, it's a, a legitimate way for us to get to heaven. And the question we have to go with those presuppositions is, are they consistent with reality as God has revealed it? And the answer is no. None of those are consistent with reality. All of them, if that's what we embrace and that's what we choose for our life, may endanger us for eternity. Because none of them require us to come to faith in Jesus Christ having confessed our need for him because we are hopelessly lost sinners. And we can hold on to them as firmly as we like, but one day we're going to wake up in eternity and go, ah, how did that happen? Apparently I hadn't put things together well. I had one of those moments during Sunday school today. I'm happy to be in Sunday school. I'm happy. We had a great class, but not until after when I sat down, we're all there, and I, I like to cross my legs, and I realized that the blue socks I have are not matching with the blue plant pants I have on, quite like I thought. And I said to the guy, I literally went, oh, what did I do? I said, what color are my pants? They said, black. Yeah, that was not good, okay? I had intended to take my blue pants out of the closet in the dark because they look great with this blue tie with the green contrast and the blue socks and the brown shoes. They work with black pants. It looks ridiculous. And I woke up and went, oh, I had it wrong. Now, friends, we laugh about that. We can laugh about having black pants on when you thought you had blue, but it is not going to be funny when we enter eternity and we have held to so firmly with presuppositions about reality that are endangering our eternity and we find out, guess what? It didn't fit. It didn't go together. And we're lost because we refused to let the Spirit of God seeking to minister to us. We resisted the Spirit. We resisted Him. Or we literally slandered Him, whatever it was. But we didn't let Him have His work in our heart and we are lost that will not be funny so I want to encourage us as Jesus is, speaks very very soberly about people who are they're walking a really fine line that if they maintain to hold such a slanderous position they will be lost for eternity we've got to ask that question have we, have we resisted the spirit of God as he seeks to inform us of what scripture says that we all have a sin problem and the only revealed solution to our sin problem is Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on his death on the cross his burial and resurrection from the grave that's all that God has revealed friends and regardless of how we might want it to be something else it's nothing else and so the question that we have to ask ourselves is have I embraced what God's Spirit is trying to impress upon me? Have I ever confessed my need as a sinner for what Jesus Christ has accomplished? Because he alone is the hope that God provides. The power team was very consistent in, in encouraging people with a very simple prayer about recognizing that we're sinners and that we need Christ. In the aftermath of what they have brought to us. It's a good reminder for us to ask ourselves, did that whole week go by and we resisted the Spirit throughout? Let's pray. 
Father, I, I pray this morning that we will understand the, the significance and the weightiness of what, of what the Lord Jesus Christ is proclaiming, that when we resist the working of your Spirit, when we slander your Spirit, it puts us in a position that there's, there's nothing else coming to help us out of our desperate situation. And so, Father, I pray this morning that if there is any, anyone here who knows they have never received Christ in a personal way, I pray this morning that they will confess, yes, Lord, I am a sinner, and yes, I need Jesus, and I will resist your spirit no more, and I yield myself to you that you might save me through what Christ has done. Lord, I pray that every one of us leaves this worship center today knowing that our faith is securely placed in Jesus Christ, him alone and nothing else. I ask it in his precious name. Amen.